Good morning. As always, I count it a tremendous privilege to be able to spend this time with all of you, opening God's Word together to see what He has for us. I pray that He would grant us wisdom and discernment this morning as we together consider one of His attributes. I'm um, half sorry for the long readings. Um, we certainly here at Abiding Grace Church, we have spent uh, 45 or 50 minutes on, on one verse. Uh, we can do that um, sometimes, but this morning uh, was narrative, and so I wanted to set the whole context. If you would, please have your Bibles open to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. There's only one overarching message this morning. And that message is this, that there is a limit to God's patience. Or said another way, God's patience is not infinite. Now please allow me to be clear about what I don't mean. I do not mean to say or even to imply that there is some kind of deficiency in our God. No, here at Abiding Grace Church we unashamedly declare that the one true God of the universe is infinitely glorious in all of his manifold perfections. God has no imperfections at all and he most certainly possesses attributes that are, in fact, infinite. His knowledge is infinite. His power is infinite. His presence is infinite in its span. Our God, the one true God, is perfect. We declare this unashamedly. Let me, though, be clear about what I do mean. What I mean is this. This God in His manifold perfections, most notably His goodness, His mercy, and His grace toward those made in His image, God willingly delays His wrath and judgment upon sin in order that His ultimate purposes, notably His desire to demonstrate His great glory and power, God delays His wrath so that His ultimate purposes may be brought to fruition for all the universe to see. Sir Edward Lee, who sat among the Westminster divines in 17th century England, this is what he wrote regarding the patience of God. Quote, The patience of God is that attribute whereby he bears the reproach of sinners and defers their punishments. Or it is the most bountiful will of God whereby he does long bear with sin which he hates, sparing sinners, not minding their destruction, but that he might bring them to repentance. End quote. And the Puritan Stephen Charnock said this, quote, Patience signifies a willingness to defer and an unwillingness to pour forth wrath upon sinful creatures. God moderates his provoked justice and forbears or waits to revenge the injuries that he meets with daily in the world. And quote. And we must note this, this this delay, this deferment, this forbearance is not infinite. It is not indefinite. Time always runs out. To use a biblical phrase, eventually humans will, quote, fill up the measure 
of their sins. And God's patience will run out like sand in an hourglass. There is a limit to God's patience. For those of you who are keeping score this morning, this morning's message comes in three parts. First, I will demonstrate this truth from Numbers chapter 14, the story of Israel redeemed out of Egyptian slavery and in the wilderness. Second, I will then demonstrate this truth from the overarching storyline of the Bible. And third, by God's grace, I will provide some perspective and exhortations on how we ought to live in light of this truth, this reality. So part one, Numbers chapter 14. God's patience runs out with the Israelites in the wilderness. Those of you who are familiar with the story of the birth of Israel know that Numbers 14 is a decisive turning point in the life of Israel, at least for that first generation of Israelites who were rescued from Pharaoh, who were redeemed out of Egyptian slavery by the strong and merciful hand of Yahweh, their covenant God. Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25, you don't have to go there, just says this, that in the midst of their suffering in Egypt, quote, God heard the Israelites groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites and he took notice. God meets Moses in Midian at the burning bush and he reveals himself to Moses by his covenant name, Yahweh. I am who I am, he tells Moses. And Yahweh sends Moses back from Midian to Egypt, where he had been raised in Pharaoh's household, but had fallen out of favor. Yahweh sends Moses back to Egypt to be the great liberator, to deliver the message to Pharaoh. Let my people go, that they may serve me. Of course, as you probably know, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, has no interest in letting the Israelites go. Pharaoh was quite content with the bricks that the Israelites were making. And truth be told, Pharaoh was even more content in being convinced that he himself was some kind of God. He would not be subject to the demands of some Midianite God, or so he thought. Some Midianite God that he had never heard of. Well, it didn't turn out very favorably for Pharaoh after ten plagues, whereby his land and his people and his nation had been ravaged by the judgment of Yahweh on all the Egyptian gods. After the ten plagues, the Israelites walk right out of Egypt, having plundered the Egyptians, being led by Moses and Yahweh himself in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. Yahweh leads Israel to the Red Sea and he delivers them from the pursuing Egyptians who had apparently realized that all their slave labor was now gone, but also apparently having forgotten all of the devastation that had just befallen them. And Yahweh leads Israel to and through the Red Sea on dry ground, making their liberation and redemption complete. Once through the Red Sea, Yahweh brings the descendants of the man Jacob to Horeb, the mountain of God, better known to us, of course, as Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, listen, an incredible thing happens. A unique 
thing in the history of the world. God, Yahweh, makes a covenant with an ethnic people group. The descendants of one man, the man Jacob, whose name became Israel. At Sinai, the nation Israel was born. But please note, this is important. Please note that this birthing of the nation Israel was something that Israel agreed to. This covenant at Sinai, what we call the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, this covenant at Sinai, Israel willingly entered into. You don't have to go there, but please hear these words from Exodus 24. Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Listen, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So Moses reads to them the book of the covenant, which he had been given by Yahweh. And in your Bible, Yahweh is just, when you see Lord in all caps, that's the name of the Lord, Yahweh. This book of the covenant, it's Exodus chapters 20 through 23 in your Bible. So we have the book of that covenant. Moses reads them this contract, if you will, and twice the Israelites agree to be obedient to Yahweh. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And when Moses sprinkles that blood, listen, verse 8, Exodus 24, when Moses sprinkles that blood from the sacrifices on the descendants of Israel, it is a done deal. The contract is sealed, the covenant is made, and obedience, the obedience of Israel to Yahweh their God, is required. Now, I have plowed this ground for a reason, and the reason is this. We have to see that the subsequent disobedience, the subsequent grumbling, and the complaining of the Israelites in the light of the covenant of Sinai. We have to see it in that light. And There was grumbling and complaining for sure. And there was disobedience, and there was grumbling, and there was complaining prior to the establishment of the covenant. That is true. You can read the early chapters of Exodus to see that. But more importantly, there was disobedience, and there was grumbling, and there was complaining after the covenant between Yahweh and Israel was made. 
after the covenant was cut. This disobedience and this grumbling and this complaining, we will put under the larger category of testing. Testing, that word's going to be very important. And this testing is no bueno. This testing, friends, is a violation of the highest order. Remember, these Israelites are grumbling and complaining against the God who delivered them out of oppressive slavery, out from under the thumb of an evil master. And he, Yahweh, had done so at no cost to them whatsoever. They just walked right out of Egypt. And this same God who created everything that is has pledged himself to them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And they grumble and they moan and they complain and they disobey. As you also likely know, the Israelites are brought to the edge of Canaan by Yahweh not very long after the Exodus. And in Numbers chapter 13, it is decided that Israel would send 12 spies into the land of Canaan to see if it is a good land. And make no mistake, this is a test of faith for the Israelites. The 12 spies come back and 10 of the 12 spies provide a bad report. You can see that in Numbers chapter 13, verse 32. Only Joshua and Caleb provide a good report. Only Joshua and Caleb pass the test of faith. The rest of the Israelites are, listen, the rest of the Israelites, all but Joshua and Caleb, are ready to go back to Egypt. Jason read for you, Numbers 14, if you want to look there, beginning in verse 2. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader. And go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb urged the Israelites to trust in the God who had brought them this far. And the people want to stone them with stones. Verse 10. In verses 11 and 12, Yahweh says to Moses, Stand back, Moses. I will destroy these people for their insolence and for their unbelief. And I will make a great nation of you. And this is a sermon for a different day. I'm not going to talk about it. But Moses, the great liberator and intercessor of Israel, pleads for the people. Verses 13 through 19. Just as he had done before during the golden calf incident, which you may remember, Exodus chapter 32. And please note, Moses appeals in his intercessory prayer to God's glory and to his great name. If you have a Bible, verse 15, Moses says, Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because Yahweh was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Verse 17, 
And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until this point. We see that specifically in verse 18, Moses reminds Yahweh, Air quotes, for those of you listening to the audio. Moses reminds Yahweh that he is slow to anger. And of course, Moses knows this from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. While he is in the cleft of the rock at Mount Sinai, Moses asks, show me your glory. Yahweh responds and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then he says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Exodus 34, and proclaimed the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, but says Yahweh, I will by no means clear the guilty. Back to Numbers 14, Moses prays and pleads for the preservation of Israel. Verse 20, then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but as I truly live, And as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Do you see that little word, but, there at the beginning of verse 21? (laughs) It's a good word. Typically at Abiding Grace Church, we often talk about how but is a gospel word. And it usually is. But, not in this case. Not in Numbers 14, verse 21. This time, that little word, but means that God's patience has run out. Let's read together 20 through 30 again. You have to see. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of Yahweh, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it but my servants. Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares Yahweh, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make 
you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Friends, God's patience with this generation of Israelites has run out. Verse 22, one of the most important verses, certainly in the Pentateuch. They have put me to the test these ten times. And now, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, whom they have agreed to obey, their covenant God has decided that they will not inherit the land promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Now, very quickly, what are the ten times that Israel put Yahweh to the test? You can look these up when you get home. I'm going to give them to you in rapid-fire form, just in the interest of time. Ten times. Number one, Exodus 14, verses 10 through 12. At the edge of the Red Sea, fearing Pharaoh's army, they cry out, the Israelites do, and state their desire to return to Egypt and slavery. Number two, Exodus 15, verses 22 through 24. At a place called Marah, where they grumbled against Moses because they were thirsty. Number three, Exodus 16, verses 1 to 3. In the wilderness of Sin, where they grumbled against Moses because they were hungry. Number four, Exodus 16, verses 19. And 20. Again in the wilderness of sin where they disobeyed God and got rotten manna. Number 5, Exodus 16, verses 27 through 30. Again in the wilderness of sin where some Israelites were found gathering manna on the Sabbath. Is it any wonder why this place is remembered by the Israelites as the wilderness of sin? Number 6, Exodus 17, verses 1 through 4, at a place called Rephidim, where they again grumbled because they were thirsty. Number 7, Exodus 32, here we find the Israelites at Sinai, and this, of course, is the golden calf incident. Number 8, Numbers 11, 1 to 3, at a place called Taborah, where the people complained against Yahweh, and he burned up a portion of their camp. Taborah literally means burning. Number 9, Numbers 11, 4 through 10, again at Taborah, where the people craved meat because the miraculous manna that Yahweh provided for them was apparently not good enough. And number 10, Numbers chapter 14, our chapter for this morning, verses 1 through 3. The people were at a place called Kadesh, and they have refused to listen to Joshua and Caleb. They have refused to enter into the land of Canaan, the very land that their covenant God had graciously promised to them. Isn't it awesome when you can go back through the word of God and when God says these ten times you can find all of them in his word? There's no guessing. They're all there. It's very clear. What is the bottom line in all of this? It is this. God's patient ran out with this generation of Israelites whom he had redeemed out of Egyptian slavery. They would not see the promised land, the land of Canaan, except of course for Joshua and Caleb. All of the Israelites in that generation were doomed to die in that wilderness. And Israel would have to wait 40 years for a new generation to come along to take hold of the promise of God. And if you know your Bible, this judgment, this God's patience running out, should not be a shock to you. Let's talk about part two. The limits of God's patience through the entire storyline of the Bible. 
Remember, the thesis statement for this morning is this, that there is a limit to God's patience. God's patience is not infinite. And friends, you don't have to read very far into Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to arrive at this conclusion. Six chapters in. If you'd like to go there, I'm going to read a little bit, a couple verses from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, Verse 5, the Lord, listen, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The story of the global catastrophic flood of Noah's day, which I affirm in its fullness. The story of the global catastrophic flood of Noah's day makes this idea clear, does it not? 120 years, this is how much longer God is going to wait until he destroys the entire earth in water. And perhaps you are thinking, well, that doesn't seem very long. Like, that doesn't sound very patient. 120 years? If that's what you're thinking, then you have forgotten, or perhaps you don't realize, that from Adam to the flood is 1,600 years that God has been dealing with sin patiently in His divine forbearance. A millennium and a half, this sinful debt has been building. And besides all that, please be reminded this morning that God is under no obligation whatsoever to wait at all. God is free. And it would be perfectly just if He did. But God is free to kill you and He's free to kill me the very moment we first sin. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And that verse, by the way, is in the New Testament. A couple of pages over in Genesis 15. It's a great chapter. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It details the covenant that God makes with Abraham, called Abram in this text. I note here that this covenant in Genesis 15 is a unilateral covenant. God himself is the only promise keeper. And I'm not going to go into all that detail that's here. I only want you to note the biblical language in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Look with me together. Genesis fifteen sixteen, And they, speaking to Abram, and they, your descendants, Abram, referring to the Israelites, whom we have already considered at length, they shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Does that mean? This is what I want you to realize here. God sends his people, listen, this is, this is amazing, this, I want you to think about this. God sends his people 
Abraham's descendants into Egyptian slavery with all its ills and all its suffering because, because he is patiently waiting for the pagan Amorites to fill up the measure of their sins. Whatever wrath God has in store for the sins of these pagan Canaanites, and by the way, we know what that is. Read the book of Joshua. Whatever wrath God has in store for the sins of these pagan Canaanites, He patiently allows them to continue sinning, that their punishment at the hands of the Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, that their punishment might be just. From an apologetics perspective, right, you hear all the time, you can't, people can't deal with the conquest of Canaan, right? And yet the conquest of Canaan was delayed because God is patient. Let's move to after the book of Numbers. After the Israelites have in fact taken control of the land of Canaan. And more importantly, after the Israelites have entered into covenant with Yahweh as we have previously noted. Now let me set up this scenario for you briefly. We have to dip briefly back into the book of Leviticus. Specifically Leviticus chapter 26. You don't have to go there, but I would commend that to you as reading for homework. That's what I do. Leviticus 26 is homework. Okay? I'm going to read you a couple of things. And this might be a good place to stress the importance of having a working knowledge of the Old Testament as well, which I will continue, and we the elders here will continue to encourage you to have. In Leviticus 26, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, articulates to his people blessings for obedience to the law that God has given to them and the curses, the curses that will come upon them if they disobey. There's a more well-known version of these lists in Deuteronomy 28. I won't go into the reason why they're repeated there. That's not the point. The point is this. Leviticus 26 provides these blessings and curses to the Israelites that Yahweh had redeemed out of Egypt. By the way, before Numbers chapter 14. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read the entirety of the relevant portion. Again, you can read it yourself. But this is obviously a very serious and sober portion of the scriptures. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 23, Yahweh says to Israel, this is God speaking, and if by discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Verse 27, but if in spite of this you will still not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That's verse 29. 
Verse 31, Yahweh says, I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas, referring to the sacrifices. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. Verse 33, and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. In the Bible. You do your devotional year-long reading plan. I'm sure you've read this. What is this? This is the people of Israel, because of disobedience, because of their violation of the covenant at Sinai, being utterly ruined and hauled off into captivity. And what's the time frame of God's patience? Because that's really important for us this morning. What is the time frame of God's patience? Well, Moses gives this word to Israel around 1450 B.C. David is king of Israel in approximately 1000 B.C. The northern portion of Israel, called the Kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, goes into the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. And the southern portion of Israel, called the Kingdom of Judah, goes into the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. And why did they go into these captivities? Why? For their spiritual adultery. Their idolatry, their disobedience to the commands of God, for their covenantal violations. After he, Yahweh, had graciously and sovereignly given them the promised land that he had promised to Abram all the way back in Genesis 15. God held up his end of the bargain. You need to know that. But I want you to see... Hundreds of years, almost an entire century, God patiently bore with the sins of Israel. He bore with their spiritual whoredom, their utter abandonment of the God who had called them, who had redeemed them, who had saved them, at no cost to them. Almost 900 years. Years, Yahweh sends them prophet after prophet after prophet, calling Israel back to obedience, calling Israel back to their covenantal obligations, wooing Israel again and again and again. But eventually, God's patience wore out. And maybe verse 29 of Leviticus 26 especially freaks you out. Where Yahweh says that the Israelites will, quote, eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. Make no mistake, this was real. It happened twice. The first time it happened in 586 BC when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and Solomon's temple and again in the time leading up to 70 AD when the armies of Rome raised Jerusalem and its temple to the ground. You say, well this is the Old Testament, Steve. Okay. Let's spend some time in the New Testament. An example of the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, while he's preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, Paul says this. He's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, giving them this Old Testament lesson, right? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere. To repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. One more biblical data point and then we'll wrap up with some application. Please turn again to Second Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, in direct context, the Apostle Peter is telling us that the global catastrophic flood of Noah's day, which is real... The global catastrophic flood of Noah's day was a precursor. It was a proof... That God will, in fact, destroy this earth once again, not with water, but with fire. 
Just like God's patience ran out in the days of Noah and judgment came and the entire human race, save eight, were destroyed, so even now, his patience is running out like sand in an hourglass. More than anything this morning, what I want you to see is that God's inspired word gives us all these examples to pound home to us the same idea that there is a limit to God's patience. It is not infinite. Part three. How ought we to live in light of this truth? In light of this reality? This is boots on the ground stuff, brothers and sisters. First, if you are a Christian, I would say this. You should live in the fear of the Lord. I don't mean the kind of cowering fear that hopes that the king won't show up. I mean, you do understand, don't you, that the reason why criminals are always looking over their shoulders is because they're afraid. Afraid of what? They're afraid of the authorities. They're afraid of the people in charge, the people who can catch them and book them and punish them. This is not the kind of fear that I am referring to. For the Christian, I mean the fear of the Lord that knows and is convinced that the king is coming that desires that the king would finally come, a reverent fear that breeds a desire to be found in him, in his good graces, righteous before his great white throne. Look at Second Peter 3 again. I'm not saying anything different from what we have already seen. Verse 11, Peter writes this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the universe as we know it, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, listen, this is so, so good. Beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. We wait patiently and we are diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Second, again to Christians, those who have placed their full trust in Christ as Savior, I would say this. God's limited patience is good news for us. In the same way that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to be our Savior, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, so God has guaranteed us that we have only a limited amount of time left in this sinful, fleshly jar of clay, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. I don't know about you, but I'm about done with this thing. This body. 
But our King is coming, and with Him comes, among other things, glorified bodies, fit for eternal bliss in His presence, come Lord Jesus. And Christians, for us, God's limited patience is good news if you look forward to an eternity without sinning. Third, again, to the Christians. God's patience towards us, His kindness towards us, should lead us to repentance. To the putting to death the sins of our flesh, the besetting sins that seem to dog us day by day by day. And each of us knows what they are. We know what sins, (laughs) we know what sins God has been telling us about. Let us not, brothers and sisters, be among those who test the Lord by our disobedience, by our complaining. God hates complaining. See, if we continue to test the Lord, then His loving, disciplining hand will come. And it proves when it comes that we are His beloved children. He has saved us, beloved At no cost to us. So then let us repent and receive all things, all things from his hand with thanksgiving. Fourth, again to the Christians, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I would also say, the fact that our God is patient should lead us to be more patient with those around us. See, our problem is not that our patience will eventually run out, is it? Our problem is that our patience runs out way too fast. You know, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience. And one theologian says this, he says, quote, As with most of the attributes of God that we are to imitate in our lives, patience requires a moment-by-moment trust in God to fulfill His promises and purposes in our lives at His chosen time. See, the reason why impatience is a sin is because it, like every other sin, it is a manifestation of our unbelief. So let us prayerfully cultivate a spirit of patience in our lives. For our Savior God has been so patient with us. Has He not? Finally, this word of exhortation is to any and all of you who are listening, who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. The application to you should by this time be clear, and I hope that it is, because if it isn't, then I have failed miserably this morning. So let me be clear, as clear as I can with all of you who have no fear of God at all. This is foolishness. As Brother Jason said this morning, any and all who do not feel the burden of their sin. All of you who have not given King Jesus the worship and praise and gratitude that He is due. All of you who are still spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead and you don't even know it. The stiff-necked scoffers who don't realize that every breath you take is a gift of unmerited grace from God, your Creator. And even those who are hurting, really hurting, 
and don't know where to turn. I'll say it one more time. There's a limit to God's patience. His patience is not infinite. And every moment that you live is another moment that God has given to you to turn to Him in repentance from your sin and faith unto salvation. To turn to Him for forgiveness and healing, to cast your burden, whatever it is, to cast your burden upon Him so that you don't have to carry it any more. A human being made in God's image shuns the king and the judge and the savior of the universe at his or her own peril. And so I beg you to humble yourself before his mighty everlasting throne of grace. Because of those who humbly come to him, he will not cast any out. And the precious blood of his son is powerful to save and to forgive and to sanctify. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. God's word will not return void. And for this I am thankful. All glory and honor and power and dominion be to King Jesus today and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.